Well, good morning. Happy New Year. If I haven't a chance to meet you, my name is Scott Hickox. I am part of the teaching team, and it's an honor to be here today. It's always an honor to be here. It's usually an honor under better circumstances. I hate that I'm here today because Tim and Melody have COVID. If you haven't heard, uh, that's why I'm here. The rest of the staff is either sick or out of town, and so uh, you're stuck with me this morning. But um, Tim and Melody are doing better. I just got a text from him this morning. Symptoms are reducing, and uh, they plan to be here next week, so you can just continue to pray for them throughout the week. And I don't know if you're on social media. I was waiting to get his update before first service. I wasn't sure if I was going to get it, and then I saw on social media that uh, he finished his year of running 365 days in a row, so he ran the last four days, so obviously he's doing pretty well, okay? Um, He's going to be just fine. So um, I hope you had a good Christmas. We had all of our kids in from out of town, uh, which was really sweet. They come from around the country, and we enjoyed uh, time with them. One of the things that has started to happen, Amy and I have really enjoyed adult children, um, and one of the things that, that I enjoy the most with our family is, is dinner time now, and it's, it's not just because my wife is a good cook, though she is. Um, what happens, and it, it, it just sort of happened, I don't know how it happened, but um, it's sort of become a tradition that we, we sort of have these questions at dinner time, and my son-in-law is really good at sort of creating these uh, very unrealistic, crazy scenarios, and then asking us, how, you know, how we would respond in these situations. Um, but other times, other members of the family will ask more, more serious questions. At the end of our vacation uh, this summer, someone asked, you know, just sum up our vacation in one word, and we sort of went around the table, and, and everyone responded, or where do you see yourself in five years? They just... Good questions make for good conversation, right? And we, I think we love people who ask good questions because it shows that they're interested in us. It, it sort of uh, deepens relationships. And um, so I was thinking about questions this week, and, and then I realized, actually, uh, while I don't know about you, but over the last year, I've, I've had a lot of questions, frankly, that I'd like to ask God. Uh, I've just been wondering about things. Uh, but actually, in Scripture, God asks questions uh, of his people. And so I, I thought this morning we're going to look at one of those questions that he asks. Um, and see, the difference is when we, we ask questions, we ask questions to get answers. That's not why God asks them. He isn't lacking in knowledge. Um, when, when God asks questions, he's asking uh, for our benefit and not, not for his. Um, I, would, I would suggest to you that good questions expose and encourage. And I think the questions that God asks actually expose our hearts and hopefully uh, they encourage us to trust and repentance. And I think we're going to see both of those in Mark chapter 10 this morning where Jesus asks a very, a very pointed question. So if you want to open your Bibles uh, or devices, whatever you have, if you want to go to Mark chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning. Next week when Tim is back, we'll get back to that series in Luke that we have been in. <clears throat> but our passage today includes two encounters that people have um, with Jesus. And I really think uh, they're intended to sort of be compared and contrasted because Jesus asked the very same question uh, in both. James and John respond by seeking fame, and and Bartimaeus responds with faith. Um, James and John want to sit with Jesus in glory, and and Bartimaeus wants to just follow him wherever wherever he leads. So let let me read. We're going to start in verse 35 again, Mark chapter 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left hand in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We are able, they told him. 
Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him to keep quiet. But he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said to him, call him. And so they called the blind man and and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man, said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and begin to follow Jesus on the road. This is the word of the Lord. Let, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that your spirit is present to teach us. We, we need you this morning. And so, Lord, I'm praying just that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. I pray uh, that you wouldn't let me get in the way. Um, your people, we, we all need to hear from you this morning. And so I pray you'll use these words, the words that you've given me and uh, maybe in spite of me, whatever it takes, Lord, I pray you would speak in a way that we would hear And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, we would be changed. So do you do that now by the power of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, I'm guessing uh, everyone here has probably seen the the movie Aladdin. Uh, It's an old old Disney uh, movie. It's about a a poor sort of homeless boy. He spends his days stealing things uh, from other people, stealing food. He's hiding from authorities. But, But one day... As he's rummaging around, he comes across this this lamp, and he begins to rub it. And the genie comes out and and grants him three wishes. And I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to just imagine that I was Aladdin and and what I would wish for in that that scenario. And Jesus actually asks a similar question twice in this passage. He, He says, what do you want me to do for you? That's the question that he asks. And so we're going to look at, at two responses to that question. And, and what I'm praying is that God would actually expose and encourage us um, along the way. And here's the big idea before we start. And we'll, we won't get there maybe till, till the end. But the big idea is that Jesus is patient in our demands. And he's present in our desperation. That's what I hope we'll see uh, this morning. But before we dig in, I think we need to understand the context a little bit of, of Mark. Because we haven't been in this, in this book. So it... We're reminded just a few verses before that Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. And we don't have time to go too deep into this, but a few chapters back in chapter 8, that's where Peter, another one of the disciples, he makes this claim of, he declares who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus, after that, says, yeah, because he is the Christ, he's now going to have to suffer and die. And he says he's going to be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. 
And then he tells his disciples, if anyone is going to come after me, they're going to have to take up their own cross and follow me. And so he, he, he's starting to talk about selflessness and, and sacrifice. And then in chapter 9, he tells them again that he's going to be killed and that he's going to rise from the dead. And, and immediately after that, he comes upon the, the disciples and, and they're having this conversation. And so he goes up, he wants to know what they're talking about. And I guess what they're discussing, right after Jesus has told them he's going to die and, be, and, and rise from the dead, you know what they're talking about? They're having this conversation about who's going to be the greatest among them. So Jesus tells them whoever wants to be first is going to be servant of all, another reminder of selflessness and sacrifice. And so now, that, now right before the passage we're reading today, for the third time Jesus tells them he's going to have to suffer and die. And this time he actually gives them more details. He says that he's going to be mocked, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to be flogged, and then, and then he'll be killed. And then he'll rise from the dead. And so it's right after that, right after, James and John come up and they say, Hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? I mean, my kids used to try something similar when they were younger. They would come up and they'd say, Daddy, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, but before I ask, you have to promise you're going to say yes. Now, I... I know I don't look very smart, but, but, but I knew what they were up to. You see, at least my kids were asking if I would do it. The disciples aren't asking here. They simply tell Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I think we should just let that, that sink in for a moment. They're actually telling Jesus what to do. I mean, the disciples had watched Aladdin. They, they thought he was a genie. In essence, what they're saying is, um, Jesus, you report to us. You're going to do what we want you to do. They're demanding him to do what they want. And here's the thing. They're, they're not five-year-old kids. They're not, they're not trying to trick their dad. These are adults. These are the followers of him, and they're trying to manipulate God. I mean, it's crazy if you think about it. And then I was pondering that a bit more this week, and, and then I began to realize... That's often how I pray. Selfishly, I, I want my will to be accomplished. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But, but how does Jesus respond here? I mean, he certainly he could have rebuked them in their, in their arrogance. Um, he, could have, he could have judged them. He could have punished them, even though he had every right to do that. Instead, he responds with grace. You see, he's, he's patient in their demands. He simply asks them a question. He says, okay, what? What do you want me to do for you? Now, before we look at their response, I think we ought to look at a couple more things for context that might be helpful first. This is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where, where James and John are without Peter. Everywhere else in the Gospel, it's the three of those guys together. They're like Jesus' best friends. They are always together like three peas in a pod. But remember I told you just a few chapters back, Peter had been rebuked by Jesus for saying that Jesus should never suffer. He's not around right now. And so, you know, good friends as they are, James and John see an opportunity here. They decide to leverage his absence and get in good with Jesus. I mean, they say, you know, there, there's only two chairs anyway. Peter will be okay. Don't worry about him. How, how about I'll take one on the right and my brother take one on the left. See, I think it tells us something about their hearts. 
Secondly, for context, James and John are called the sons of Zebedee. We know from other places in Scripture that their father Zebedee was a, a fisherman. He had, he had some boats. He had some servants. So, so they came from a little bit of, of money. They already have status. They already have some power. They just want a little bit more. And so these are the two guys who are, are making this audacious claim, this audacious demand of Jesus, okay? Back to the story. So Jesus says, what? What do you want me to do for you? And immediately after he asked, they say, well, since you ask, Jesus, here's what we want you to do for us. I mean, we've heard, we've heard about this whole kingdom thing. Sounds pretty exciting. We know you're going you're gonna to rule the suffering talk. Not so much. But we know you're going to be in charge. You're going to rule. And so we want to sit on thrones with you. We want to be in the premier place. I mean, don't worry about Peter. He'll be fine. Just put one of us on your right and one on your left. I mean, can you believe the audacity of these guys? Maybe you're wondering, like I did, I mean, are they, are they really this, this vain? And I think the answer is, is yes. I mean, they want position. They want, they want power. They want glory. And it gets worse. I mean, in verse 38, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you going to be able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you going to be able to baptize with the baptism that I am? And they say, we are. I mean, they don't even know what they're saying. Just a quick side note. I, I think this is one of those stories. The fact that this story is in the Bible just helps us know that the Bible is true. I mean, think about it for a minute. If, if, if you're the disciples or the followers of Jesus and you're going to write a story, you're going to create a religion that you want people to believe why would you include information that makes two of your leaders, two of the authors of these books, look so petty and insecure? I mean, why would you include that information? And I would submit you wouldn't. You would never write this unless it was true. You see, Mark writes this. He tells us this story because it's true. And he also tells this story, I think, because it's true of us. See, Jesus' question didn't just expose James and, and John's heart. He, he exposes our hearts as well. See, I think if we're honest, all of us struggle in the same way. We want influence. We want recognition. We want, we want fame. We want popularity. We want, we want glory. Frederick Nietzsche, he was a philosopher in the 19th century. He once said this. He said, what distinguishes humans from animals is not our ability to think, but the will to power. The drive within every human being to conquer, to climb the ladder, to reach the highest place of exaltation. Now, he was wrong about a lot of things, but I think he's on to something here. I think he has an understanding of the human heart, and, and many times it's not, it's not pretty. I'll tell you a story. Over, over the years, I have officiated a, a lot of a lot of weddings. Um, but this last year, we got invited to a wedding in St. Louis that, that I didn't have to officiate. I just got invited to go and, and just enjoy. And so uh, I'm going to go. My wife's excited. I'm actually going to get to sit by her at the wedding. And our, her friend's daughter over there, she looked beautiful. Ah, she has this infectious personality. She's smiling. I mean, the wedding day is all about the bride, right? She's, she's really happy, smiling. And, um, and actually, the wedding is about more than that. It's about marriage. It's about, it's about the gospel, right? It's this beautiful picture. And so they're in without any responsibilities, just enjoying this day. And guess what I'm thinking about? 
wonder why they didn't ask me to officiate. I mean, I mean, I'm listening to this guy, and I'm thinking, I think I could do that better than him. The day is supposed to be about them. The day is about the gospel. And I've made it all about me. It's pretty embarrassing to admit. The reason I feel comfortable sharing is because I know you struggle too. In many ways, you're, you're just like me. We're, we're just like James and John. We, we have this innate ability to make everything about us. I mean, if you doubt that, look back at the passage. Look at, look at verse 41. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now, so if you were thinking the other disciples were more noble than them, think again. And I would submit they, they, weren't, they weren't angry about the question. They're angry because those were their chairs. That's where they wanted to sit. They, they were angry that James and John got there first. I remember in high school, my, my best friend, he, he turned 16 before the rest of us, and so he got his car before the rest of us. And, and, I mean, a beautiful Camaro. We loved that car, and we loved to ride in the car. Um, but we didn't just want to ride. We wanted to ride in the front seat. And so the first, when we're going to get in his car, the first person out the door would call. <laughs> Whoever called shotgun gets to sit in the front seat, right? James and John called shotgun first. Everybody else is angry. You see, they, they, they wanted the place of prominence. They wanted the best seats. I think the rest of the disciples' indignation demonstrates that their hearts were just as vain as James and John's. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in the 1800s, and he says, this passage is the brightest mirror of human vanity. I think he's right. It just exposes us. I mean, if, if we're honest, we are a lot more like the disciples than we, than we want to admit. I mean, far too often, we want the story to be about us. I mean, just think, these are not things that you often, maybe never, say out loud, but, but, but just think about some of the thoughts that go through your head. I wonder what they're thinking about me. What are they saying about me? Do they like me? Do they think I'm funny? Can I do better at him at work? Can I lift more than her at the gym? I mean, those questions are always in our mind. It's at the core of who we are. We, we, we want everything in life to be about us. And don't you see what we're doing when we do that? I mean, essentially, what we're doing is we're, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. John Stott said, this is the essence of sin, man substituting himself for God. Far too often, I think that's what we do. But once again, we see the grace and the mercy and the patience of Jesus. I mean, after this arrogance of James and John and the, the indignation of the rest of, of the disciples, Jesus doesn't condemn them. He calls them. What, what patience? Jesus is patient in our demands. And now he's going to turn their idea of greatness sort of on his head. His, his whole kingdom, as we've learned, is upside down. It's not what we expect. He's already told them three times that he's going to have to suffer and die and rise from the dead. But he's willing to tell them again. And then following that, 
And he's going to tell them that if, he's, if they're going to follow him, it's going to require sacrifice and service. That's what true greatness entails. Look at verse 42 to 45. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this goes against everything they had thought. I mean, their, their idea of greatness was, was power. It was, it was influence. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. He had told them that's who he was. You see, they thought the, the Messiah was going to establish this, this earthly kingdom. He'd have an earthly throne that he would sit on. He would squash the, the Romans. I heard a pastor say, um, if they had action figures in those days, they would have played with a, a Messiah action figure. And he, he would have been awesome. I mean, because everyone knew that the Messiah was going to rule. And so they would have sold all kinds of accessories for this. Clothing and, and weapons and crowns. But you couldn't have found a store anywhere in Israel that would sell a cross accessory. See, because it's not... Part of their plan. It wasn't their framework they had for this. Their idea of greatness was completely different. Jesus says, The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over people, but my kingdom is different. Jesus says, If you want to be a part of my kingdom, it's not, it's not how high you can go, it's, it's how low can you go. It's not about what you can get, but about what you can give. And keep in mind, this whole exchange came about. It started with a question from Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? And James and John basically said, we want glory. Now in contrast to that, starting in verse 46, we have the story of Bartimaeus. Bar in that language means a son of. We're, we're told he's the son of, of Timaeus. He's a beggar. He, he's outside of town. It's quite possible that he's been rejected by his family because of his blindness. He's on the fringe of, of society, really. So you can sort of see the contrast already. James and John, they, they had privilege. Bartimaeus is, is poor. When he hears that Jesus is passing by, out of desperation, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have, have mercy on me. Again, more contrast. The disciples came demanding. Bartimaeus comes desperate. And the people rebuke him. They say, they say be quiet, stop it. Because of his desperation, he cries out all the more. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 49 begins with a beautiful phrase. It says, and Jesus stopped. I love that. I just imagine if this was, if this was a movie. I don't know if the chosen did this actual story or not, but I just imagine if they did, the cameras would be on Jesus' feet. And they're just walking along. And all of a sudden, he stops. And everyone who's following him stops. And in the background, you just hear this, this cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, the cry of a desperate man brought Jesus to a stop. I think that's beautiful. The cry of a desperate man brought the creator of the universe to a stop. See, Jesus heard his cry. 
And now the King of kings and the Lord of lords is standing still for this man. See, he's present in Bartimaeus' desperation. Man, I hope that encourages you this morning. Jesus hears your prayers. He stops. He, He listens. He prays with you. He prays for you. And if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. That Jesus hears the desperate cries of his people. He's present in our desperation. So what does Jesus do? Then he calls him. He he asks the question that you heard before in verse 51. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Again, Jesus doesn't ask because he doesn't know the answer. He he asks to expose Bartimaeus' heart. And I think the words of Bartimaeus show us more contrast because the first word he says in the original language is is Rabboni. Now, some of your translations might say Rabbi, but the original language says Rabboni. It was never a word used to describe a human being. It was a word used to to address God in prayer. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus uh, at the empty tomb. So if you remember back in verse 35, the disciples simply called him teacher. And here Bartimaeus calls him God. And then he says, let me recover my sight. In essence, what he's saying is, I know you're God. I know you can do this. If you're willing, have mercy on me. See, the disciples came seeking power and position. Bartimaeus came seeking mercy and help. The disciples had physical sight but were blinded to spiritual realities. But Bartimaeus was physically blind saw Jesus for who he really was. Bartimaeus was desperate. Not not just for healing, he was was desperate for God. Since we're talking about questions, maybe here's just a few to ponder um, this morning. How, How do you approach Jesus? How do you approach him? Do you do you see him as as a genie or as God? Are you seeking the gifts? Or the giver? Maybe a few more questions will help. Do you, do, you, do you come demanding or do you come desperate? Do you seek him for what he can give you or do you seek him because of who he is? Verse 52 ends the passage. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and begin to follow Jesus on the road. We've looked at the, the, the contrast between the sons in this story. There's actually three sons there, right? The sons of, of um, Zebedee, James and John, and then the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. Three sons. There's actually a fourth son in the story, right? Jesus calls himself the son of man. It's a title of divinity. Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, the title of divine kingship. Jesus is the son of God. And this son did not sit in glory removed uh, from the world. He gave it all up and he came to earth to humbly take our place on the cross. And he didn't just give us a demanding moral teaching. He, He actually lived it. We didn't have time to unpack these, but if you want some homework, you could go back and read. But Jesus did lay some pretty radical expectations on the disciples in this passage. In verse 39, he told them that that they were going to have to drink this cup of suffering. 
In verse 44, he said, if they want to be great in the kingdom, they're going to have to become servant of all. So it seems clear that Jesus is expecting them, and I think us as well, to be radically different than the rest of the world. He's calling us to serve others no matter the cost. And let's just be clear this morning, it will cost, right? But if that were the only message of Christianity, it would, it would not be good news. That's not a gospel message. We don't just need someone else giving us a list of things to do and to be. We need help, right? And that's the beauty of Mark 10, 45. We skimmed over it earlier, but it's certainly the key passage, the key verse in this passage. It's likely the, the key verse in this entire gospel. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I mean, the whole reason that Jesus came was because we couldn't do this ourselves. We just celebrated Christmas, but, but don't forget... Christmas was necessary. Christmas happened because we needed a Savior. I think throughout Advent and on on Christmas Eve, Tim made it very clear that that Jesus was born to die. He gave His life so that we could live. So I'll just say this, if you're here this morning and, and you've never received that gift, boy, He is calling you this morning. What a great way to start the new year. If you have questions about that, talk to someone after the service. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think that the God of the universe gave His life for us. And it's also mind-boggling that the God of the universe actually longs to serve us. He served us in His, His dying, and He also wants to serve us in our living. John Piper says it would be a terrible mistake if we saw Jesus' call to be a servant of all in verse 44 as a call to serve Him. It is not. It's a call to learn to be served by Him. Stick with me here. I'm going to lean on Piper for a second. But he argues that this is really the the heart of Christianity. This is what what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. We, We have a God that doesn't need our service. He's not glorified by us helping him out. Our God is so full and so self-sufficient that he he glorifies himself by serving us. And he did this by, by taking on human nature, by becoming one of us. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. And he seeks us out. And, and then he tells us he didn't come to get our service, but to be our servant. And in other words, I think what he's saying here. Is it, yes, we are to be His servants that, and that we may have to suffer to do it, but that demand that He gives us, that demand is exactly the place where He wants to serve us. I mean, think of it like this. Every time that Jesus commands something for us to do, it's His way of telling us that that's where He wants to serve us. That, that's the place he, he meets us to carry our burdens and to give us power. When you become a follower of Jesus, you you don't become His helper. He becomes your helper. You don't become His servant. He becomes your servant. And listen, not a servant in the sense that you can tell Him what to do, but a servant in the sense that He uses all of His divine resources to help us. 
and to strengthen us and to guide us and to support us and, and to provide for our needs. Hear me this morning, church. Jesus doesn't need your help. He commands your obedience. And then he offers his help. See, that's why becoming a Christian is, is such a humbling thing because what we have to do is we simply have to admit that we need help. And so we cry out like Bartimaeus, have mercy on me. We come to Jesus and we say, listen, Jesus, I can't do or be all the things I know I need to do and be, so help me. I'm desperate. I need someone beyond what I'm able to do. So, so I'm turning to you. I need you. I, I trust you. And I have nothing to offer in exchange. You see, when we do that, when we, when we submit like that, that's when Jesus becomes our servant. And when he does, all of his other radical commands are no longer things that, that we do for him, but things that he enables us to do for others. See, the Christian life is a life of, of serving others in the strength that he supplies as our servant. It's loving others with the love he gives us. Sacrificing and suffering with the hope and the joy and the patience that he gives us. Following Jesus is a, walk, is, is a life walking in the shadow of our servant king. Church, when that begins to, begins to sink in, when we begin to understand that, I think it begins to impact then how, how we pray. So I'm just going to ask you a little bit about your prayers as we wrap this up today. Have you been like the disciples, treating Jesus like a, a genie? Have you, been, have you been demanding that he, he serve you by doing what, what you want? If you're unsure, here, here's just a very simple diagnostic question. You can ask yourself this question. What if Jesus answered every prayer I prayed in the last three months? Would the world look different as a result? Or would just my world look different as a result? If you've been demanding like the disciples, just, just repent this morning. He's patient in our demanding. And I want to be clear, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't ask. God invites us to crowd. He, he wants us to pray. He wants us to ask Him and to meet our needs. And in fact, I think He asked the same question of us this morning that He asked in this passage. What do you want me to do for you? So you're not being selfish when you ask. He wants to hear your prayers. The distinction is simply this. Are you, are you demanding like the disciples or are you desperate like Bartimaeus? Is it your glory or His? Some of you, like Bartimaeus, may feel desperate heading into the new year. Um, I get that. Are you overwhelmed with need in the midst of suffering? Maybe... Maybe part of your desperation is you're just, you're just tired of, of asking. You've been praying for years and, and nothing has happened. You're just afraid of being disappointed again. I mean, I can't imagine how many years Bartimaeus had prayed for food or, or money or eyesight. But when he, when he knew that Jesus was near, he, he couldn't contain himself. And he just cried out and he said, have mercy on me. 
So if you're desperate this morning, I, I just want to encourage you, I want to remind you that he is near. He promises to be near to the brokenhearted. I was tempted not even to read verse 52 at the end of the passage because I think the temptation for us then might be to think that, well, if I just have desperate prayers, that God will answer them all just how I want. But that's not how things go. It's not how it works. I can't promise you that, but what I can promise you is what Scripture promises, and that is in our desperation, He will be present. And He'll be enough. So if you're desperate this morning, I just want to encourage you. Man, just cry out. Admit your need. Just, just, just say to Jesus, I need you. Have mercy on me. He's present in your desperation. Our passage this morning reminds us that regardless of whether we're like the disciples or whether we're like Bartimaeus, that Jesus calls us all. He, he didn't condemn them. He, he called them. And I think he's calling us this morning. He, he wants us. He invites us to, to come to him. And again, I think he's asking the same question today as he did then. What do you want me to do for you? He came. He came to serve us. Let's ask him for his help. So let's pray this morning. Father, this is hard for us to get our mind around that you, first of all, just that you came to us, you came to save us, but that you hear our prayers, that you want to meet our needs, you want to serve us. So forgive me, forgive us when we come demanding, when we focus things on ourselves. Lord, would you take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on you? And Lord, I want to pray for folks who are just desperate this morning. And maybe they are exhausted. They, they've, they've been praying for years. You haven't answered in the way that they would like. Lord, would you just remind them that you are present. You're with them. Lord, I pray as a church body that we could be a part of that, that we could be present with those who are desperate. And I pray just that you would do a work in all of our hearts. That regardless of what's going on around us, that you would make us desperate for you. Our hearts would cry out for you. That you alone could be the one to satisfy. So Lord, in this new year, would you do that? Would you make us a people more desperate for you? In Jesus' name, amen.